We are looking at the third commandment today. The bigger kind of subcategory or theme for the day is resting in God's promises with God's people. We're taking a look at Psalm 122 and where we find the third commandment in Exodus 20. And first of all, Psalm 22 verses 1 through 9. Here we read, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. And also here we get the third commandment in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is God's word. And Luther's response to that third commandment in the small catechism is this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. All right, we're going to divide our teaching tonight in these three points. They're all three major concepts that are related to the Sabbath, the concept of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath has a concept of togetherness, the togetherness of the Sabbath, the peace and restfulness of the Sabbath, and finally, the joy that comes in the worship attached to the Sabbath. Okay, if you can get those three concepts down tonight, togetherness, rest, and joyful worship. Togetherness, rest, worship. Okay, first of all, the togetherness of the Sabbath, and a little bit of of a background on Psalm 122. This is a Psalm of David. In the opening verse, he says, let us go to the house of the Lord. And lettuce is probably too weak. You probably should translate it. We will go to the house of the Lord. We're confident. We will go to the house of the Lord. And interestingly, some people might think of the temple when he says that, but the temple isn't built during David's life. So he's probably thinking, most scholars will say, he's thinking when the Ark of the Covenant comes back to Jerusalem and they set up the tabernacle to house the Ark of the Covenant, that's probably what he's thinking about as house of the Lord. And he's also talking about the grandeur of Jerusalem. He's talking about the prominence of the city, the beauty of the city, the security of the city, the peace that exists unusually in the city. And this psalm happened to be used as what was called a pilgrim psalm or a psalm of ascent. That means that the people who are outside of Jerusalem annually, when they made their three annual pilgrimages to the city of Jerusalem for those festivals, they would sing this psalm as they were like climbing, as they were ascending up the hill that J Jerusalem is on, right? It's a, it's a pilgrim's psalm. We talked about the pilgrimage of every believer last week a little bit. All right, well, the first big concept then is togetherness. And you'll notice in Psalm 122, specifically, he says things like our feet. And he says things like our walls are built closely together. And he says our tribes are coming together. And Jerusalem, therefore, is the one place that all the different tribes would go to on a regular basis to collectively worship their one true God. In fact, Jerusalem itself was intentionally, specifically 
chosen because it was like a center point and a bridge amongst all the 12 tribes. So literally, Jerusalem is positioned on the border between the tribe of Judah, where David was born, and the tribe of Benjamin, where the first king of Israel, Saul, was born. There absolutely was a unifying factor attached to the concept of Jerusalem. For that matter, it was like militarily a nearly impregnable city because it's positioned on top of a hill. It's very difficult to attack. And the basic idea here then, the big idea that is getting to, is when God's people are interconnected, when God's people are touching and worshiping together with one another, there is security in that. There's power in that. We saying this earlier, the gates of Hades cannot overcome that. When God's people go to Jerusalem to worship together, the gates of Hades cannot overcome that. Now, we also, not to throw one more lesson at you, but the first lesson we looked at from Hebrews 10 had that very, you know, kind of famous phrase, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. If you are familiar with that phrase, you've probably heard a pastor say it before, and you've maybe especially heard a pastor say it during the two years of pandemic, uh, as people are less inclined to like gather together for stuff. The big idea then is like God's people need to continue to get together. Now, the, the secret or the dirty little secret is that attendance numbers for churches were declining long before COVID ever came. So like, this isn't the one thing that's dividing the church. But it absolutely does mean that. It does mean God's people do continue to need to get together regularly, but it actually means way more than just showing up for worship. In fact, the Greek word that's used here for getting together is the Greek word episynagoge, which is where we get our word synagogue from. But the prefix epi means near to or at or close upon. The big idea, God's people need to be together. You have to be together. John Wesley famously uh, was uh, uh, regularly saying, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian, that kind of concept. Okay, so God's people need to get together. What exactly does that mean? We call ourselves a congregation. We don't just call ourselves a church. You know what a congregation is? It's actually really helpful to think about it in contrast to a similar concept called an aggregation. That's used more often in like business terminology. You know what an aggregate is? I think of it like this. An aggregate is sort of like a box of Tic Tacs that they're all very similar, but they're completely distinct from one another. No matter how hard you shake the Tic Tacs box, they're not going to meld together or anything like that. They all remain separate. A congregation is more like a cluster of grapes. They all in close proximity touch one another, but they're actually vitally connected to one another because they come from the same vine, you know, like they're drawing from the same source. If your perception of church throughout your life is that of like an aggregation, let me put it like this. If it is like a movie theater experience where I go to a theater, I sit down in rows of people, all the stuff comes from up front, I consume it, I critique it a little bit and see whether or not I like it, and then I leave with the hopes of not interacting with anybody hardly at all along the way. I don't know about your movie-going experience. I don't want to interact with anybody. My biggest concern is that somebody sitting next to me's knee is going to touch me. And like, I, just, I, don't want to, I don't want that contact. I want to be as alone as possible. That's an aggregation. If you're just sitting there consuming stuff shoulder to shoulder with one another, looking at the back of someone else's head, how are you supposed to do what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about in the verse right before this, where he says, do things like spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You can't do that in here. You can't even hold a conversation with somebody in here. It's not really what it's designed to do, but this, if this is your entire concept of church, like that ain't good enough. We correct and rebuke and we train 
and we encourage in righteousness, the power of the early Christian church was the fact that they understood on like a day-to-day basis, I can access the authority and power of God through one another. I get to experience God through one another. Why do you think Jesus says, where two or three come together, there I am with them? He's not just like doing an attendance checklist. He's saying the way you experience me on the earth is through the people that I indwell by my spirit. If you're wondering how this works, let me just give you a very practical example, like the magic attached to this. If you are going to improve as a human being in any kind of extraordinary way, how's it going to happen? Generally speaking, it's going to happen because you recognize you have some kind of flaw about you that you're able to somehow mitigate and grow beyond and and improve upon, right? Uh, Well, how are you going to find that flaw? Because the very nature of sin, according to the Bible, is we're blinded to our own sins. In other words, our deepest character flaws, almost by definition, are the things that we're least aware of. So how are you ever going to repent of something that you don't even know exists in your life? You know what the idea of the church is? You have somebody in your life that you love and that you trust because they showed acts of kindness and service to you who with gentleness and respect are willing to point out some of those flaws to you so that you can repent of them. See, you have to do it together. Individualistic Americans, we have to do it together. So think about the Sabbath concept. Nobody Sabbathed on their own. Uh Uh-uh. No, the the nation had a day. So if you look at Exodus 20, verse 10, it says, On the seventh day is the Sabbath. On it you shall not do any work. Notice who's not supposed to do work. Is it you as an individual? Neither you as an individual, nor your son or your daughter or your spouse or your male or female servant, not even your animals or any foreigners. We have to do this together because we're not able to self-actualize. We can only group-actualize into the best versions of ourselves. Let me point out one other concept here before we move on to the next point. Really interesting to me in verse 4. And this comes from people who have kind of a self-actualized mentality. They don't understand this either. Notice that in verse 4 it says, On the Sabbath you are to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. Statute. That's not statue. That's a different thing. Statute is an old-timey word for command. It's an order. You must go and worship. Hmm. Now, okay, Modern people feel very uncomfortable with the idea of if I don't have the right mood to do something, I nonetheless do the behavior. Modern people feel very inauthentic by doing that, right? And not only don't, am I not going to do it, but I some, to some extent think I shouldn't do it because that would be disingenuous to who I am as a person, right? You know what that is? That is your mood is your God. We talked about idolatry in the first week, that any good thing can functionally be your God. When you can't do something, if your feelings say no to it, your feelings are functionally your God. They get to call the shots in your life. And you know why that's a bad idea? It's not that hard to prove. If you just did whatever you felt all the time, look, have you ever had one of those days where you just feel like you're going to kill somebody? Have you ever had one of those days where you didn't feel like you were going to kill somebody? Because I'm still waiting on one of those too. Should you kill the person? Of course not. What about if you know somebody who is deeply depressed and they're like, I feel like throwing myself off of a bridge. Should they throw themselves off the bridge? You'd say, of course not. Why? What do you learn about that? Our moods lie to us. 
Our moods absolutely give us very dangerous, very unhealthy messages from time to time. It's not that they're inherently bad. It's that they can be super easily tricked by Satan. And one of the things that you learn actually in just kind of a general truism in modern psychology is the basic idea. I don't even have a chart here because I guarantee you've seen it before. The idea that your thoughts tend to lead to your feelings, emotions, attitudes, mood, tend to lead to your behaviors, right? You've seen that before, like the pyramid. Thoughts lead to feelings, attitudes, moods lead to behaviors. That's absolutely true, but a slightly less deep trench, but nonetheless it still works, is it flows the opposite direction too. So your behaviors can absolutely influence your moods and your attitudes and your feelings, which can absolutely shape your thoughts. It goes the opposite direction as well to a lesser degree. This is one of the reasons why, for instance, if you are overwhelmed, let's say, with melancholy, your therapist might tell you, well, you need to get up and move around more. You have a very sedentary life. You need to get up and move. What are they saying? Do this behavior. It will release some endorphins and dopamine into your life, which will affect your mood, and that will improve your overall mental health. See, it moves the opposite direction too. This is precisely the reason why God can command us to worship, even if I don't feel it even if it feels disingenuous or inauthentic. You know what God would say to somebody who doesn't feel like worshiping today? You probably need to worship more than anybody else. Why? Because if you can praise God in the middle of the storms, you can actually get to the point where you have the power to praise your way out of those storms. God doesn't just give us reasons for why we should worship, although there's tons of those. He commands that we worship. And when we do it, when we submit to that teaching, we're absolutely blessed by it. Okay. All right, let's move on to point two. So there's the togetherness and worship concept of the Sabbath. Uh, we'll come back to the worship concept in a second. Secondly, the peace and rest concept. If you don't know, the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew Shabbat, which literally means to cease, to stop, to stop doing something. In other words, like to not work. And the way we find it here in our text in Exodus 20 is this. It says, you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. No work was allowed. Now, in Psalm 122, which we're also looking at, the word rest isn't used, but a very similar word in these verses, verses 6 through 9, is used. And that's the word peace. Peace is used three times. Security is used. Prosperity is used. And it's all the same kind of basic concept. In fact, even the word Jerusalem. You know what the word Jerusalem means? Jeru shalom. It means the foundation of peace. You have to understand the bigger metaphors of Scripture sometimes. When God's people went to Jerusalem, what are they saying? When we gather with God's people to worship the one true God, when we Jerusalem, that's the foundation of peace in your life. See, if you don't have any peace in your life, maybe what you need is to be with God's people worshiping God because that gives you Jerusalem. That gives you the foundation of peace. It's a profound concepts like this built into Scripture. Right, even right into the names. But point is here, in both of these texts, there's clearly given a design for intentional work and a design for intentional rest as an expression to the fact that we are, we are finite creatures who cannot go constantly, and we are also need to express confidence in a God who controls all things. Therefore, when we stop or when we at least slow down, we know that life isn't going to fall apart. He's still holding all things together. See, it's an expression of faith. The modern person's relationship with work and rest is actually interesting for a variety of different reasons. I'm actually going to 
Uh, some of you are going to recognize this book. I think probably a dozen different people in the congregation have told me they've read this. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry uh, by John Mark Comer. This is the first time I've ever had a book given to me three different times by three different people. I've had two different people give me the same book on a number of occasions. I've never before had the same book given to me three different times. I don't know what that says about me or what people are trying to communicate to me, but uh, nonetheless, it's really good. John Mark Comer, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of what he says here in the next couple of minutes, but he gets into this concept, really, of the relationship between technology advancement and rest or lack thereof in modern humanity. In fact, there was a belief in the middle of the 20th century, so like the height of the modernist era, there was a belief that like technology was advancing so rapidly that it was going to get to the point where people pretty much didn't have to work anymore in the future. It's the uh, like Jetsons concept. If you remember that, like, so there's this old cartoon, it was like the 60s Jetsons. You got out of bed and it like combed your hair and brushed your teeth and, and showered you and changed you and gave you food and all that. That was like half right. Modern advanced technology, robotics has put aside some of the more menial tasks that humans have to endure in life. What they never accounted for, the futurists in the middle of the 20th century, is the fact that humans don't primarily work simply to take care of the tasks needed for survival. Humans also work to try to give their lives some meaning and purpose, to make a name for themselves. This is the whole point of the Tower of Babel lesson in Genesis 11. Why are they building a skyscraper? They don't need a skyscraper. Why are they building it? To make a name for ourselves, right? And so what advanced technology has allowed us to do is, rather than work less, it's actually allowed us to accomplish more work. So that's what we're leveraging it for, generally speaking. Again, Comer explains this really well in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He has a section on, again, the, the relationship between technology and rest. And one of the things that he points to is the landmark year of 2007. He says, you would think technology advanced would create more convenient, more relaxed lives. However, as an illustration, he gives like Thomas Edison, 1879, invents the light bulb. He says prior to this, human beings, at least Americans, slept on average 11 hours a night. Imagine that. I'm, I, that number is a little dubious to me. I'm not exactly sure where he got that information from, but that's his claim. Nonetheless, it's a metaphor for how advanced technology doesn't necessarily give you more rest. Why? Because the light bulb, prior to that, when the sun went down, what are you going to do? Like, let's go to bed because, like, what else is there to do? When you get the light bulb, we can stay up. See, the advanced technology, instead of giving you more energy and more time, it's actually taking away more energy and more time at that point. And again, he points to 2007 as a year on par with 1440. You know what happened in 1440? It was the invention of something called the printing press. Uh, Johannes Gutenberg invents this thing called movable type in the printing press. Up until this point in history, when you wanted to share information, it either had to be by way of mouth or if you wrote something down, you had to scribe it down. It took forever, it was extraordinarily costly, and so on and so forth. Now you can start printing en masse information and disseminating that information. There's two things that, so far as I'm concerned, are the biggest factors in why Americans think and feel the way we do today. They both couldn't have happened, the Protestant Reformation and European Enlightenment. Neither one of them could have happened without the advent of the printing press. So that's how technology can be leveraged. What happened in 2007? It was the invention or the release of the iPhone. 
And actually, in 2007, the iPhone is released just a couple months after Facebook becomes available to anybody with an email address. That's actually the same year that a microblogging site referred to as Twitter comes out. It's the same year that we get things like cloud storage, so there's this like infinite amount of storage for things. It's also the same year where we get things like the App Store. In so many ways, 2007 is a landmark year for like the mark of the digital era. When, things, when we moved from media being a physical medium, like a newspaper or renting a movie or things like that, to everything being online connectivity, okay? Now, a lot of good things happen from that advancing technology. I'm not trying to say it's all like be the old guy that complains that everything's moving too fast and the world is, you know, the world these days kind of thing. A lot of good things happened. The ability to maintain a relationship with somebody from a far off distance that you don't have physical close proximity to, that's an incredible blessing. The advancements in education and information, now that everybody has pretty much access, that's when like online classes started to become a thing. Everybody has access to most of the information that's available in the world. That's an extraordinary equalizer amongst human beings. Uh, safety, safety goes up. Some of you right now could take out your phone, click on an app, and you can see like seven cameras in your house, mostly you know, intruders or just your dog running around, but like you have the ability to have that kind of information at your fingertip. All that's great. So there's lots of good stuff. However, journalist uh, Greg Easterbrook about five years ago wrote a book called The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. How life gets better, but people feel worse. And what he says is the undeniable statistics today are that 10 times more people today in the Western world report major depressive disorder than just 50 years ago. 10 times more people. Now, what Easterbrook concludes in his book then is he says, look, so far as I can tell, by almost every measurable statistic, Europeans, Americans, Canadians, Western world, their lives have improved, except in their happiness. Every aspect of life has improved, except our happiness. What's going on with that? It seems to be a symptom of like a deeper problem. It's not that we should demonize technology. It's not even that we should demonize something closely related like social media. Uh, in fact, Comer highlights in an interview that was conducted with Sean Parker back in 2017 with Axios, the, the website Axios. Sean Parker, if that name sounds familiar, that is the first president of Facebook. It was the guy that uh, Justin Timberlake played in the movie, uh, if that's helpful. The Social Network, I think is what it was called. He did an interview in 2017. He now refers to himself as a conscientious objector to all social media. The guy who was the first president of Facebook calls himself a conscientious objector to all social media. And in the interview, he says this. He says, God only knows what social media is doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever else. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and more comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. 
So again, the issue is not just social media. John Mark Comer puts it in a broader way according to human, a deeper human emptiness. He says it like this. We're all running to something. Promotions or purchases or experiences or stamps on our passports or the next high. Searching in vain for something no earthly experience has on offer. A sense of self-worth and love and acceptance. And in the meritocracy of the West, it's easy to feel like we're only as good as our next sales commissions or quarterly reports or music single or sermon or Instagram post or new toy. So we're constantly out of breath chasing the ever-elusive wind. Let me push it even a step further and like in spiritual terms. Sometimes when you're acting in faith, it means you have to step out in faith. And sometimes when you're acting in faith, it means you need to sit down and just stop for a second. Sometimes faith means you need to grab hold of stuff. And sometimes faith means you need to let go of stuff. I mean, when you do an inventory of our society, by almost every metric, we're more stressed out, we're more discontented, we're more depressed as a society than we've ever been, despite the fact that we have historically unprecedented amounts of our basic needs in life being met. That means something else is wrong. We're taking vacations. We're taking those days off. Something else is wrong. Our souls are wrong because we're never, they're never healing because we're never allowing them to rest. What that means is as an expression of faith, sometimes we need to slow down, unplug from the busyness of life, do it with God and do it with God's people. Let me give you one more piece of information under, under this. That, uh, so it's not all like negative, bad news. One really cool piece of information that he brought out of this was an article that was written in 2014. You can look it up in Huffington Post if you want, but it's an article written by a doctor. He was researching who are the happiest people on planet Earth. And one of the groups that he found was a group called the Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists, if you don't know, they are a group of Christians. They are firmly Christian. They practice a slightly different uh, doctrine than a lot of other Protestants in a couple different ways, but namely, they are very religious and literal about the Sabbath regulations. What he also found out is not only are they amongst the happiest people on the planet, but on average, they live 10 years longer than the average American. Seventh-day Adventists live 10 years longer than the average American. You know, if you take all of the Sabbath days throughout the course of an average human lifetime and add them up, you know what it coincidentally comes up to? About 10 years. Uh, you know what that might mean? All the days that you weren't resting are like literally shortening your life. If you don't do what God tells you to do as a finite creature and sometimes slow down and sometimes stop, it gets taken off the end. Or if you invest in the rest that God programmed you for, maybe it even gets added on to the end. It reminds me very much of a couple months ago, I was studying through Leviticus. And one of the things I realized for the first time was that when the nation of Israel went into captivity in Babylon, they went for 70 years. And the Bible very specifically says, this is because you disobeyed my Sabbaths. You didn't honor my Sabbaths. Now, it's complicated. There's a variety of factors. But they not only had Sabbath days, they also had these things called Sabbath years where they're supposed to let the ground uh, go, not work the ground, let the animals go and not let them work and, and so forth. And what God said is, because you don't honor that, I'm going to collect. 
I'm going to pick them up eventually. And so 70 years is not random. When you take the 70 years and understand that they missed every other, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that ever says that the Israelites ever honored one of those Sabbath years. So in captivity, God is collecting for the exact amount of time that they have had that Sabbath regulation. It's honestly kind of wild, but the basic point is this, by not taking time off that God had commanded for the Sabbath, Sabbath days and Sabbath years, you're literally shortening your own life. I'm not exactly sure how much to push that, but I am very confident that God's people have to honor his intentions for intentional work and intentional rest balanced in his life as an expression of faith to God. Final point. In some ways, this is the easiest point. And the psalmist said at the beginning of Psalm 122, he said, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. One of the reasons this is the easiest point to make, the idea of joyful worship, is because if you're doing the first two, you can get this one. If you're spending the amount of time that God says to spend together with God's people, if you're spending the amount of time that God says to spend unplugging and relaxing in a meaningful, meditative, Christian Sabbath kind of way, if you do those two things, you're probably going to be more thankful towards God. You're probably going to be a more joyful person in general. You're probably going to sing his praises and worship him, right? It just kind of comes naturally when you do the first two. There's one other thing that I want to mention here under this point. It's extraordinarily interesting that when you read through the third commandment, it's recorded differently in two different places. So I think I've mentioned each week so far, the 10 commandments, they're recorded in two spots in the Bible. First, Exodus 20, where we've been reading it from. The other place they're recorded for us are Deuteronomy 5. Now, by and large, it's very similar from one to the next. The place where there's the biggest variance, however, is when it comes to the third commandment. And you know what the difference is? This is super interesting. In the first one, in Exodus 20, specifically what it says is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But when you fast forward to Deuteronomy 5, what God says through Moses at this point, he doesn't say remember the Sabbath. He says, observe the Sabbath, guard the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. Now, Deuteronomy, so far as we can tell, is probably written maybe like 40 years after Exodus is written. What that means seemingly is Moses has been watching God's people not honor the Sabbath as well as they should have. And he's like, don't just remember it, do it. It doesn't do you any good unless you do it to some extent. What's also interesting is that in the Exodus 20 account, very clearly, Bible commentators will tell you, it is rooted, it's rooted in the Genesis narrative. So specifically what it says there in Exodus 20 verse 11 is, for six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. See, it's rooted in the creation account. But if you fast forward to Deuteronomy 5, it's not rooted in the creation account. In Deuteronomy 5, it's rooted in the Exodus narrative. Specifically, what it says there is, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Here's what's going on here. The first time he gives the command and he talks about your design, he's saying, if you violate your design, it's going to blow up your life. God created you as a finite creature. You need to rest you need to gather as a community of people interdependent on one another and find your rest amongst those people. It's rooted in the creation account. It's rooted in your design. 
But in Deuteronomy, it's rooted in the Exodus narrative. And he's not talking about design. He's talking about your redemption. He says, you're not slaves anymore, so why are you still working seven days a week like you're slaves? See, slaves never got a day off back in Egypt. When they got out from Egypt, when God liberated them, he says, you take a day off to celebrate your freedom. You take a day off and worship with God's people. Don't you believe that if you take this day off, God is going to provide for you? Don't you believe that the God who can rain down plagues upon his enemies, the God who can separate the seas that you walk through, the God who in every way, shape, or form, whether he has to drop down manna from the sky to the ground, he will provide for you. Don't you think if you take a day off, if you stop a little bit, he's going to take care of you? See, it's rooted in your redemption. You have to, as an expression of your freedom, not be a slave to the systems and the schedules of this world. See, it's design and it's redemption. It's the will of God and it's the grace of God. And you know where the will of God and the grace of God converge best in the Bible? At the cross of Jesus. That might not surprise you. But what does it mean that Jesus gives us Sabbath rest? It means that at the cross on Calvary, what Jesus did is he took, he took the separation from God that we deserved for our sins so that we could get the community and togetherness of God's people and the relationship of a triune God eternally. At the cross, he took the unremitting pain of chains and nails in hell so that we could have the relaxation and the rest of the mansion of God in paradise. He took the cosmic rejection of God so that we could receive the eternal acceptance and love of God. See, Jesus worked really hard so that we could rest. He gifted to us a Sabbath of togetherness, rest, and worshipful joy. And let me just close like this then. We humans have a tendency, we have a tendency to act like our own gods. Meaning we live like we think we're in control of our lives. We think like we should be in control of our lives. We feel like we're alone and we're solitary and we can go as hard as we want, as long as we want, because it's our life to do with as we please. And religion is some sort of like obligatory nuisance that we sometimes have to check off, but... God says, no, Sabbath, whatever that means in a New Testament concept, you need to Sabbath. God programmed Sabbath for a finite people. And when we exercise these three principles of togetherness and physical rest and joyful worship, we do it because it acknowledges that the major work, the work of our salvation is already complete. We do it because we need to intentionally take time to rest our bodies. We do it because we need to do this together because we can't do life alone. We live in God's promises with God's people and we do it as an expression of our faith that we believe God actually is in control and can take care of us even when we stop for a little bit. Since Jesus finished the work of our salvation, we worship him at times by ceasing to work and God blesses that Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, many of us have trouble slowing down steadying our minds, healing our bodies, even spending quality time with others and spending quality time in your word. Though you perfectly were obedient to this command of God and all commands for us and have forgiven us 
We ask that you now help us see the wisdom in this Sabbath. May it glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.